0: Listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast by Dr. Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Invite like you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter six. We just sang the song "I'll Follow You All of My Days." So let me ask you a question: How are you doing on that? Let me ask you another question. I don't expect answers. Just think about these. What what today, if somebody asks you the question, what's the most important thing in your life? How would you respond to that? What is it you spend most of your time doing or thinking about or talking about? If you are around somebody for 30 minutes, what's going to come up at some point in the conversation? Because it's important to you. I want to read Luke chapter 6, verses 46 and following just to the end of the chapter. I've been preaching through the book of Luke and... This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's Gospel, we get more detail. It's three chapters, and at the end of those three chapters, where Jesus has taught this group of people, probably by this point, thousands of people have come, and they're listening to him teach. And at the end of it, they look at each other and think, wow, we never heard anybody preach like that. He preaches as one, as one having authority, not like the guys we're used to listening to. And so in Luke's Gospel, we see a shorter capsule of the Sermon on the Mount, but at the end of it, Jesus has been teaching them these things, and now He's basically asking for obedience. And He says this, Why do you call Me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to Me and hears My words and acts on them, I will show you whom He is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. For the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me boss? The word means master or controller. That which is valued the most. That which is most important. See, I had that question posed to me when I was about 12 years old. I went into a Sunday school class at my church. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. And I went in, and this was a fairly large church. We actually split up. I think it was the 8th grade. So I was maybe a little older than 12. It was 8th grade. And uh, there were, you know, enough students in there that we separated the guys. They had like two classes for the guys and two classes for the girls and I remember sitting in kind of the opening assembly thinking, well, my teacher's not here. That wasn't that big of a deal. And if you've ever taught eighth grade boys Sunday school class, you could understand why he might need the day off. So what would normally happen is when he didn't show up, they'd simply stick us in the other class. But I looked around and he wasn't there either. I thought, what are they going to do with us? We don't have a teacher today. And some of us guys got together. We came up with some great options for what we could do during Sunday school. Well, they didn't go for any of our options. In fact, I don't recall them asking our opinion. They simply split us into two classes, and one of the ladies teachers taught one of the ladies taught the girls' class, and the other lady came in and taught our class. And again, girls, you've never been in an all guys classroom, but it can be kind of distracting and that sort of thing. And a lot of times we didn't pay attention. And I know it's not like that anymore. This is a long time ago. But I remember a lot of time, kind of waking up during church, thinking, "Did I go to Sunday school? I can barely remember." You know, could you just kind of roll out of bed and get there? And well, on this Sunday, they put us—the girl or lady they put to teach us was a, a college student on home at home from college. She was very pretty, so she had all our attention. I remember we were sitting around the table. She didn't ask us to. We sat around the table. You know, normally we were hanging out the window and throwing things and making noises and that kind of stuff. We didn't do any of that. And she started with this question. She said, "What's the most important thing in your life?" And again, I was used to our teacher asking questions, but then he kind of read kind of out of the material, and that's how he taught the lesson. Well, she didn't do that. She just had her Bible open, and she said, what's the most important thing in your life? And then she did something really unusual. She actually looked at the person on her left and said, well, how about it? She expected an answer, as if she was going to go around the room. Well, guess who happened to be sitting on her left? You got it, me. And I didn't hear, I didn't get the benefit of what anybody else answered. You know, if I go to a restaurant, I kind of like to hear what everybody else orders. It kind of helps me make my mind up sometimes. I like to go last because they may think of something that I didn't notice on the menu. But when she said, what's the most important thing in your life? I knew the answer. I, well, I knew the answer, what it was supposed to be. You know, if you ever ask a question in Sunday go. just say Jesus, you know. <laughs> really doesn't matter what the question is. They'll even make it sound like it's right, you know. If they wake you up and say, well, how about it? What's your answer? And you say, Jesus. And they say, well... We just wanted to know what, where we were going for lunch after Sunday school, but we're going to go and we'll pray in Jesus' name, so that's good. You know. Well, she looked at me. She, I knew what the answer was supposed to be, but I also knew what the answer was, and it wasn't Jesus. Yeah, I was a Christian. I'd made a profession of faith. I'd been baptized in that church, and I believe I was legitimately a Christian, but Jesus really wasn't the most important thing in my life. In fact... If you had looked at my life during those days, I spent pretty much every day of my life at the golf course. And that's what I talked about. That's what I thought about. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Not a golf course, but a golfer. (laughs) Well, that didn't work out. That's why I'm a preacher. (laughs) And uh, so when she said, what's the most important thing in your life? I just thought I'd try something unique. I just told the truth. I said golf. And she didn't make a comment. She just went to the next person. His name was Rick. Rick was my best friend. Rick's most important thing in his life was baseball. If you were around Rick for five minutes, the subject of baseball was going to come up. He went on and got a college scholarship to play baseball in college. It's all he ever did. It's all he ever talked about. She said, Rick, what's the most important thing in your life? Guess what Rick said? Jesus. <laughs> my friends hung me out to dry, man. It's like, come on, dude. I stuck my neck out on the line. How about being honest? She did that with every other. There's probably five other people in the class. Clay. What's the most important thing in your life? most important thing in place, life was tennis. He was this tall guy, had long arms, incredible serve. What's the most important thing in your life? Jesus. And fortunately, this lady didn't make a big deal out of me, but I sat there the rest of the day thinking, this isn't good. Unless I'm going to start a ministry, you know, called Golfing for God or something, I need to get this thing straight. <laughs> golf can't be the most important thing in your life. Now, is golf a sin? The way I play it is. It's not a sin to play golf, but folks, let me tell you, anything that you put ahead of God is a sin. And so when Jesus asked the question, why is it that you say with your mouth that I'm your Lord, but you don't do what I say? What He's really saying is, you say that I'm the most important thing in your life. You say that I'm the boss. In fact, the word Lord means controller. It means supreme and authority. Now you may find somebody in the first century, refer to someone, As Lord, just as a polite title saying, you know, kind of like Sir. But folks, they didn't just say Lord. They said Lord, Lord. They were saying to Him with their mouths, You are our controller. There's none other but You. You are the Master. And yet Jesus says, You don't do what I say. You're saying one thing and doing another. In fact, you've heard the saying, actions speak louder than words. Where is your value? Augustine put it this way, he said, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Jesus wasn't asking for just a confession of faith. He was asking for a conduct of faith. He's just taught them and has been teaching them up to this point, and Jesus had a lot of other things to teach him, but he said, You've got to get this one right. Am I Lord? Are you just taking notes on what I'm saying? Are you just kind of giving mental assent to, yeah, that sounds good. I think we ought to do that. Or is it impacting your life? And folks, I can take that out of the first century and put it into the 21st century. A lot of folks that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, He's my Lord. Well, i got a few problems with that. When you watch their life, there's no evidence of it. In fact, do you know that you can take God's name in vain without using a profane word? In the Ten Commandments it says, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. In fact, we don't read the rest of that verse it Says this, He will not hold you guiltless who takes His name in vain. God's name is important. And to take His name in vain means you lift His name up as meaning nothing. It's empty. So to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yeah, He's my Lord, and it really isn't true, you're lifting His name up to mean nothing. The other thing I hear in testimonies, both youth and adult testimonies, sometimes is, you know, I became a Christian when I was 12, but I made Him Lord when I was 16. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36 it says this: Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I understand what people are saying in that testimony. I understand they're saying, "Listen, I knew I needed a Savior when I was whatever age." But folks, the day you cr- trust Christ as your Savior, He becomes your Lord, and He begins working in your life. Yeah, you don't become just oh, you know, overnight you become a Christian. At that split second you become a believer. But there's a process that He begins in your life of lordship. And so examine your life today. Do we call Him Lord just with our mouth? Or do we call Him Lord with our life? People wouldn't even have to hear what we say if they just watched our life. They would realize He's the master. He's the controller. A.W. Tozier says this. He says, People who are crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. One, they're facing in only one direction. Two, they can never turn back. And three, they no longer have plans of their own. They don't ask God to bless their plans. They say, God, what are your plans? Because you're Lord. I mean, it's kind of like that little sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. You know, I've always said, if He's your copilot, you need to change seats. We're in trouble. Because that, that means you're the pilot. No, He needs to be the pilot. And if He's piloting your life, You can go sit and coach and just follow Him. Do what He's called you to do. In fact, Jesus over in Matthew says this. Listen to this, church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But everyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't just say He's Lord. And you think, well, these people were doing some religious stuff. Yeah, but it was all about them. Here's what I'm doing for you. The question needs to be, what is He doing through you? Because He's the boss. It's not that you just accept Him as Savior and then go about living your life in a way you hope pleases Him. But every day of your life, you say, you're the boss. You give me the marching orders for today. It's not one of these deals where you say, you know what? Just send me down your plans and I'll kind of have my staff look over them and and we'll see if we can have an agreement here. No, it's where you take out a blank sheet of paper and sign it at the bottom and say, my answer is already yes. You fill in the rest. He's my Lord. And Jesus gives them then a great illustration in the next verse, he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. See, all of them were coming to Jesus. All of them were hearing his words. The difference was, these folks are acting on my words. And he said, I want to show you who that person is like. Let me give you a picture of that person. He's like a man who builds a house. And when he builds the house, he digs deep, And he lays a foundation on the rock. He doesn't just hear my words, he acts on them. And I, I know how it is sometimes to hear words and they just kind of go in one ear and out the other. Students, have your parents ever kind of said to you in the middle of a long diatribe, they may be doing it, they say, You're not listening to me. And you're like, I heard every word you said. It's just I've kind of my eyes have glazed over. Could you shorten this up? Or maybe you're on an airplane. Have you ever done the airplane thing where they're giving instructions and You've been on airplanes before, so you don't listen anymore. Maybe there's some new information, but, you know, they're telling you about, you know, the oxygen masks are going to drop from the ceiling and, you know, the exit rows, and keep in mind they may be closer to behind you, and instead of in front of you, red lights lead to white lights or vice versa, and your seat bottom can be used for a flotation device. You know, we've heard all those things, so we quit listening to them. I think it would be a more effective at some point the lady or man who's given the instructions would say... and. Pardon us that maybe your seat bottoms are a little wet because they're still damp from our last landing. You know, that, that might wake you up to hear it. But Jesus is talking about people that have come to Him and heard. And He's talking about people that have come to Him, but now He said this guy actually acted in three things He did. He dug deep. Well, He built a house. He dug deep and He laid a foundation. I don't know if you've ever watched a building being built. i got a picture of the Transamerica building. This is in uh, San Francisco. This used to be the tallest building on the west coast, in fact, west of the Mississippi River at one time. This building took two years to build. They dug down. Let me just tell you something. The total space is it's 530,000 square feet. The total height is 853 feet tall. It has approximately 16,000 cubic yards of concrete encasing more than 300 miles of steel reinforcing rods. What happens in San Francisco? Earthquakes. You know, how smart is it to build a building this tall when you've got earthquakes that are going to come along? Well, this building has stood since the 70s. You know why? Because they dug down 52 feet. took them two years to prepare this building. And you say, well, why do you dig down 52 feet? Because there's going to come a time when the top of this building is going to move several feet in any direction. You're saying, that'd be scary. Well, I'm told that most skyscrapers are built to move a few inches at the top. When the wind blows heavy, a tornado or a hurricane or something like that, this one can move a matter of feet at the top because they planned for earthquakes. Now, you know, if all the guy wanted to do was build a building, he could have slapped it up in six months, just poured a slab and stuck an 830-something-foot building there and got his paycheck and left the country. As long as the earthquake didn't hit or the flood didn't hit or the hurricane didn't hit while he was building it. They dug deep and laid a foundation. Students, adults, that's what we're doing today. That's what you do when you open up God's Word and you hear what He says and you ask the Spirit, apply this to my life. You're digging deep. And Jesus says, the one who hears My words and acts on them is like this guy, the one who digs deep. He finds the rock, and however deep you have to go to find the rock, he finds it because a flood's coming. Now the people he is speaking to, in Israel of that day, in Palestine, the same thing happens today. If you, ever, if you go to Israel, you will see that there's like this major river right in the heart of Israel. It's the Jordan River. It flows down to the Dead Sea. And pretty much everything in Israel slopes to this. You go through a lot of desert areas where you'll see these dry river banks. You're thinking, what happened? The river dried up? Well, it dries up every year. They don't know when the rain's coming I guess if they got weather channel, they get, you know, 36-hour advance notice. But they know that at certain portions of of the year, the the weather's going to come in such a way that that dry bank there is going to fill up and it's going to sweep anything in its pathway down to the river. And so as Jesus speaks this, they know what He's talking about when He says, you know what, you can go build a house over here. But if you're going to make it last, you're going to have to dig down so that when the storm comes... It can withstand this torrent, this incredibly fast rushing water. And it could not shake it. Literally couldn't waver it. It couldn't destroy it. That's the one hand. The one hand's the wise guy, the one who the wise man who builds it on the rock, who takes the trouble to dig down. Then he contrasts that with the unwise person, the one that just wants to slap the house up in a hurry. See, the foundation is hard work. The foundation takes a lot of time. This guy over here could put up the exact same house. You and I wouldn't know the difference in the two houses. And this guy over here, I kind of get the picture, it didn't take him nearly as long to build his house. He's probably, you know, out in his yard, you know, having a barbecue or something. He's looking over at this guy thinking, you're still digging. What's up, you know? I'm enjoying this house. And the guy over there is digging. And you and I don't know the difference until the storm comes. Until the flood happens and the water hits against this house and it said it immediately collapses. Why? Because it didn't have a foundation. It was just built on the sand. And sand shifts. Here's an exercise. Go out today and build a sandcastle. Wait till low tide. Build a sandcastle. What happens to sandcastles when the tide rises? It's just level back out. We don't have to go rake this beach because it levels itself twice a day. We need to understand that spiritually too. We can kind of take the shortcuts and not do the deep digging work and just kind of think, you know, everything's happy. But you know what? Storms will hit. When the storm hit this guy's life, his building was destroyed. And it says it immediately collapsed and its ruin was great. So we come to the point then, okay, what's Jesus teaching? Let me just apply a few truths from this Scripture to our life today. And I ask you to consider the hearers. First is this. The common things about these two guys is they both heard Jesus. They both could have taken the same notes. They maybe even the next day could tell you, here's what Jesus said. Here's what His teaching was about. You know, He said, blessed are the peacemakers, or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They could have told you all those things, but some of the things that Jesus was teaching them, they hadn't applied to their life, but they both heard it. They both faced similar circumstances. The story that Jesus tells us, both guys built houses, and they both faced the same storm. In fact, probably their houses were close enough to each other they could see each other's house. They both faced... Similar storms. The difference was obedience. Let me say something to you. We're all building something. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, if you're building with wood, hay, and stubble, in other words, if the habit of your life since the time you came to Christ has been that you just really hadn't done anything for Jesus, you just kind of skated along and just become kind of a pew potato, you know? I said that one day and somebody asked me, what would you say? Did you say perpetrator? No, I said pew potato. That basically means just occupied space in the church. Well, you can do that. The only problem is there's a storm coming. We're all going to face storms. And some of you are facing storms right now. If you're not, you will. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to prepare you. The storms are coming. And who are the ones that weather the storms? The ones that weather the storms are the ones with a foundation. And you say, okay, enough about the building. Let's talk spiritually. The way you dig a foundation is to get into the Word of God, to learn who He is, to apply what He's teaching you to your life. You say, man, I'd love to have the depth. And maybe you've got a spiritual hero. You say, I wish I had the depth that that person has. Well, start applying what God's teaching you now. Because I just don't think he's going to keep piling a lot of information in your life if you're not doing anything with the information he's giving you. This lady heard this great violinist playing one day and she walked up to him and she—he he's just the best in the world. She went up and said, I'd give my life to be able to play like you do. He said, I did give my life. See, he didn't start playing the piano yesterday. He's been playing for a long time. Well, folks people that you admire their spiritual walk with Christ, is because they've been doing it for a while. And they've deepened because Jesus knows, hey, I can trust them with what I've already given to them. And they're growing deeper in me. And the storm comes, it will come. And they're not washed away by it. Last thing, and I'm done, is this. How do we prepare for storms? Because they are coming. Here at the beach, I moved here a little over eight years ago, and I've done some things since I've been here that I used not to do. One, they tell you, take pictures of everything in your house. Why? So that when you have to file an insurance claim, you can show them what, you know, most of you live in places where if something happens to your stuff, you can go back and say, well, it burned or, you know, but there it is. Here, it may get washed away. We had a storm back in the 50s called Hazel. I got a picture of that. That that is this chapel building. Can y'all see that? Those are these trusses. In fact, they're the ones back there that washed out into the marsh. I think it was 1951. Somebody help me. Was it 1952? Four. Okay, I've gotten a two and a four. Do I hear five? Can I get four? Okay, somebody's... now they're saying four. I think Bobby's just saying peace. Um, four, 1954, Hazel. That's what happened. That was all that was left of the chapel building washed out in the marsh we're coming up on the anniversary of hugo 20 years ago can you believe it's been 20 years ago since hurricane hugo of course students are going what's hurricane hugo (laughs) well down here that's something people still talk about a lot of restaurants you go into if you go to the piers there's pictures of what the pier looked like the day before in fact hours before hugo and then there's pictures of what it looked like afterwards let me show you what the chapel looked like after hugo just a few pictures That's dorms one and two. Those were the first dorms ever built. That's why they were called dorms one and two. They were destroyed. You're saying, where's dorms one and two now? We don't know. They're gone. Let me show you another picture. That's a picture of the office that used to be out, I think, out by the basketball courts. That's a picture of this building right here inside. We had over six feet of water in this building. That's building That's a picture of one of the dorms. That's what it looks like after a middle school retreat. No, <laughs> no, that's what it looks like after six to eight feet of water sweeps through and the building stood, but the bunks are just a mess. I got another? Is that it? You say, why are you telling me that? Well, we got 20 years of Hurricane Hugo uh, anniversary coming up. But folks, the building that is the closest to the beach is we call St. John. That was built before Hurricane Hugo. They built it differently than they used to build the buildings in the sixties when some of these other buildings were built. They went down like thirty some odd feet and put footers down so that because they were expecting a storm. They knew that storms come at this part of the beach. And you not only take pictures of your possessions, but you take out flood insurance. A lot of you where you live, you don't you know nobody ever mentions flood insurance because you don't have floods. We have flood here. You gotta have insurance for For floods. Some other preparations. is you. You learn an evacuation plan. What happens when they tell you to evacuate? Well, you better know kind of which way you're going because they're going to change the direction of all the traffic. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm heading to Georgetown. I wanted to go to Columbia. (laughs) Well, you better hope your GPS works because they're going to reroute you. Let me ask you spiritually, what preparations have you taken for the spiritual storms in your life? Folks, listen. Here's the preparation we take. We deepen our life. We say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't want to be in control. I want you to be in control. You deepen my life. You found my life on the rock that is Jesus Christ because when the storms come, I won't be shaken because I'm anchored to the rock. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in you. Let me close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the ones you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in himself. So the question I ask at the beginning, what's the most important thing in your life? Folks, today if the answer truly isn't that it's Jesus Christ, then don't just say Lord, Lord with your lips, but today confess Him as truly your supreme in authority, your Master. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, would you take this passage and apply it to our lives, not just today, but God, forever. God, don't just allow us to be the Sunday kind of Christians that sing the songs and proclaim that you're Lord on Sunday, but when Monday and Tuesday hits, we're back to business as usual. Because, Lord, I really believe if we've trusted you as Lord, that it will make a difference in the way we live our lives. And God, I pray even as other people watch our lives, they would know that we're not in control. You are. We, as the Apostle Paul, would say, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But not I live. Yes, He lives through me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live according to His power at work within me. Indeed, You are Lord. May it be so in our lives. In Christ's name.